The Torah content from now through Pesach has been sponsored by the Kofsky family in loving memory of Adira, who loved big ideas and asking big questions. Hello, I am Rabbi Matt Schneeweiss, and this is the Stoic Jew Podcast, where we explore the relationship between Judaism and Stoicism. Today's reading is from Epictetus's The Enchiridion, Chapter 16, but it is really from, uh, that's what we're using as our launching point, but I'm actually reading from a book called The Practicing Stoic, a philo- uh, philosophical user's manual by Ward Farnsworth, and I'll be reading chapter uh, excerpts from chapter 13. So let me just uh, give you some background here. So I have made several episodes in which I uh, express my critiques of specifically Epictetus's brand of Stoicism, and um, I haven't <laughs> I haven't reviewed those episodes before making this one, so I can't exactly remember when or how I talked about them. But my main point has really been. Uh, to criticize this underlying trend of <laughs> heartlessness or inhumanity in uh, in in Epictetus's Stoicism, uh, and I've given I've shared my thoughts on this, but I've also acknowledged that I'm still kind of working this out. So, in this book that I mentioned uh, by Farnsworth, he concludes with a chapter called Stoicism and its Critics. And he, I haven't read the whole chapter yet, but in the first part of the chapter, then he addresses this critique on Epictetus. So he leads with the following paragraph, and I I do want to differentiate. I'm not going to claim that this paragraph or that his response addresses all of my critiques, but I do think it, it gave me a perspective that I did not have. And I think it'll be helpful in working through this area. So Epictetus writes, When you see someone weeping in sorrow, either because his child goes abroad or his property is lost, don't let yourself get carried away by the impression that he is suffering because of those external things. Hold this thought in mind. What afflicts him is not what has happened because it wouldn't affect someone else the same way. What afflicts him is his opinion about it. So far as words go, don't hesitate to sympathize with him or even to groan with him if he groans, but take care not to groan inside as well. So before we we get even to the critiques, let's just understand the shot here. So the 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 approach of Epictetus, uh, which he emphasizes in many of his writings and in a number of ways, is that it's not circumstances that trouble you; it's your judgments about those circumstances. And and for example, what he says here is, you know, if it was really the circumstances that bothered you, then you would be afflicted by uh, by by your anyone else going abroad, you know. <laughs> but the fact that this is your friend means that that it is not the objective stimulus that is prompting this response in you. It's something internal to you, and it is what he calls an impression, something that is rooted in your imagination. And and therefore, it's not um, it's not you're, you're reacting to your own internal stimulus uh, as opposed to the to something that is rooted in objective reality. So that's the first part of what he's saying about about how you should view what is going on in your friend. The second part that he's saying is when you when you respond to your friend who is in the state of suffering or grieving, then you should definitely sympathize with him, but you should not feel it sounds like he's saying you should not have these feelings inside. And what actually reminds me of is when the Ramam in Hilchos Deus chapter two is talking about the the Deus, the traits that you should distance yourself from utterly. Uh, he mentions anger, and he says, unlike unlike other emotions, you should not feel anger at all. And then he says, sometimes if it may be necessary to display anger. In order to, you know, uh, discipline someone or as a leader, 
but he says you should basically play the part of an angry man in a play uh and and the anger the anger should be external but inside you should be totally calm and the ram only says that for anger um in other areas he doesn't say that meaning there are other areas other deos other character traits where where even though the extremes are are bad then there are times to feel certain things in addition to acting uh, in accordance with those feelings. But anger is another, the Ram does not say that you should do this with all emotions is my point. He says you should do this with anger. Okay. So the, the problem with this is it seems very heartless, right? Like it sounds like you should not actually grieve with your friend, uh, but you should just, you know, act the part and inside you should, uh, you should be, uh, you know, you should not be grieving. And it, it, it sounds heartless and also sounds a little deceptive, you know, like are you, you're just putting on an act like, are, do we now have to suspect all Stoics of uh, of just like faking uh, their human interactions? You know, so that's the problem here. So um, and, and furthermore, like there's something, again, very, very inhuman about about raising this to the level of an ideal. Like, are we really saying that the ideal person is just unfeeling and uh, and and that's what we're venerating? Like that seems to be sociopathic, you know. So again, uh, we're not going to address all aspects of this, but I do want to read Farnsworth's perspective. So, and I'm going to read excerpts here because it's kind of long. Um, so he says like this, this is all a misunderstanding. The Stoics do not condemn feeling. In important ways, they endorse it. Stoics value compassion, detest indolence, and are committed to service mankind. But the Stoic would unhook these commitments from inner distress over every given case. Okay, now, now he introduces a distinction that is going to, uh, that to my mind is the main idea here. Okay. What the Stoics wish to avoid are emotions or other states that interfere with the ability to see the world accurately. States of feeling, in other words, that get in the way of reason and arise from or create attachments to externals. Stoics have no difficulty with states that do not have those sources and effects. As a temporary convenience, I proposed in Chapter 9 to refer to the good or unobjectionable states as feelings as distinct from emotions. The difference between feeling and emotion is important, or the difference, however it might be better worded, between those states that oust reason and those that are no threat to it and so do not trouble the Stoics. Okay, pausing here for one second here. So, and this new jargon that he's introducing here is there's a difference between a feeling and an emotion. Emo and, and the difference is, is whether it affects your ability to reason. So he's saying Stoics are pro-feeling. And in that sense, again, this is, a, I think, one of the most damaging um, stereotypes about Stoicism is that Stoics are unfeeling. So he's saying, no, 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 Stoics have feelings, and they even endorse them. However, if those feelings interfere with your ability to perceive reality, that is what they're against, and he's calling those emotions. Okay, so he says now, um, oh, oh, sorry, I, I skipped a sentence. Uh, it matters because this distinction matters because states of feeling, as so defined, may well be necessary to motivate compassion and otherwise contribute to admirable character. Emotion probably isn't. Okay, so now he gives so that distinction makes sense. But now he gives a very, um, very good muscle slash technique uh, for how this is going to play itself out in real life. Okay, and he says like this. Let's consider more closely the intended effect of stoicism on the inner life of the student, and especially on the emotions, by comparing it to the effects of time. Start with the case that uh, that Addison, okay, so he quoted this guy, Addison, I don't know who this is, um, who was critiquing Epictetus for this point. So start with the case that Addison describes, a friend stricken by a terrible loss. Suppose you lived a life long enough to experience such grieving friends 1,000 times, and imagine your likely reaction when approached by the next friend, number 1001. 
Not everyone reacts to repeated experience the same way, so take the most appealing scenario. Your attitude might resemble that of a doctor, a very good one, let's say, who had a long career of working with dying patients and their, their families. In the best doctor of that sort, we would find kindness, warmth, and compassion. There would be feeling, but emotion would be unlikely. You would sympathize, but you would not go through mourning of your own. You would have seen it all too many times for that. Um, so, so that that's a great example. Um, and uh, you know, I I guess I have um, uh, been on the receiving end of this with my Roshi Shiva. Um, that there have been times in my life when I've gone to talk to my Roshi Shiva, and you know about personal problems and times when I've cried and been in states of pain. And what I've seen emanating from him is is genuine compassion and empathy. Um, and, uh, and that really meant a lot to me. And, you know, when I say genuine, I mean, like, you know, you can, you can feel it, <laughs> you know, if you, you've, uh, if you've, uh, you know, ha had that, uh, that, that response, but I know at the same time that my Roshi Shiva has counseled many, many, many people and I'm sure he has had this, the, you know, many, many such situations as, as what I am uh, uh, displaying uh, or, you know, as what I'm bringing to him. And I also know that that these feelings are not clouding his judgment. And that was clear from the fact that he was able to give me good advice and uh, and not allow this to interfere with his with his thoughts. And again, that's that's the distinction I really want to highlight as the takeaway from this episode, which is there's a difference between having feelings uh, which are genuine and and experiencing emotions which distort your your reasoning and and what what Farnsworth refers to this as is the uh, is long experience okay uh, the, this muscle of like having a, a thousand cases of this um, and I, I'm gonna just read a little bit more here because uh, again he's does a good job of uh, elaborating this idea he says. The connection between stoicism and the consequences of time can be extended. Think of the effect that repetition has on other emotions. What is frightening at first usually becomes nothing or loses force with long enough exposure. The source of the fear doesn't change. The mind does. Or imagine making a fortune and losing it a thousand times over or loving and grieving a thousand times. You might not stop caring about these things and might not want to, but you would probably gain a sense of equanimity about them and meet them with a certain detachment with feeling, but with reason and thus without emotion. Little would likely be left of greed and vanity either after so much gain and loss. Experience is humbling. Instead, you might have other types of joy, the calm kind that comes from appreciation and understanding. So uh, that's an interesting example also. And I, ha I guess I have um, two, I, I haven't had this experience, but, uh, but two groups of friends that I've had um, that, uh, that I'm, I could probably relate to this. You know, uh, one is friends who are uh, or have been professional poker players and then friends who were involved in, in areas of uh, finance and investment that involve tremendous gains and losses uh, throughout the day. And I've talked to both groups of friends and they have, uh, they, you know, they've talked about how important this is that, that, you know, the, the novice, uh, or the person who's really not cut out to be in any of those two professions is, is going to feel tremendous ups and downs when, when the fortunes change. But if you, if this happens every day, like if you are constantly getting huge gains and losses, so then the long exposure to these things will not produce those, um, those, those thought warping emotions uh and you'll be able to maintain your reason in, in in light of those things um okay i'm getting to the end of my time here i'm just trying to think what else i should read um 
So he he then concludes by saying that that this uh, he says um, connecting the stoic disposition to the quality of character. Oh, sorry, sorry. To return to the point, the absence of emotion prescribed by the Stoics in response to a thing is also what we would expect naturally from long enough exposure to it. Feeling and compassion can survive and even grow with long repetition and experience. Emotion does not. The sifting between emotion and feeling that comes naturally with experience resembles what the Stoic aims to achieve by the practice of philosophy. Um, and then he goes on to list the uh, the, um, the the ways in which this answers the question. And uh, I'll just give one more example here. Uh, he says uh, the experience this ex- the experience based view makes the goals of stoicism more familiar and easier to understand. Everyone has had small experiences of of inurement by experience and the difference between feeling and emotion that can result. We don't need a dozen lifetimes to get the idea of it. One can compare the first experience of grief with the tenth, or the first encounter with an with an amusement with the fiftieth, or the first kiss with the hundredth. These experiences need not lose their meaning or be had without feeling. We might say in, uh, instead, in the most attractive case, that the feelings at stake. Mature and change. But even then, such events do eventually lose their emotional charge and become no threat to reason. There are cases in which emotional inurement is harder to come by, of course. I only mean to say that the process of it and the qualities of the stoic wise man are familiar enough to most people on a modest scale. So uh, an example of this I I can take from teaching. So, And I actually just read... one of my friends just hit her uh, 10th year of teaching and was writing her reflections on it. And a lot of those really resonated with me that when you first become a teacher, you take everything or many of us take everything personally. You know, when a student, you know, gets upset or doesn't learn or like or or like, you know, tries to get you in trouble uh, with the administration, it uh, then it, it's very hard to not take that personally. And then as you go on, then you learn you know, through repetition and experience, you learn that uh, that that not to become attached to such things, and and you might still have feelings about them, but those feelings are don't rise to the level of, of emotion where it interferes with your reasoning power. All right, I'm I think I'm going to stop this here. I mean, clearly this is uh, there are questions to be that that remain, and um, but I I do think this is an important first step of differentiating between feeling and emotion. And what I endeavor to do is when we return to this problem, whenever we do, maybe tomorrow, maybe a month from now, uh, then I, I think these categories of feeling versus emotion and the muscle of long experience and the muscle of the good doctor uh, will be useful. That's it for today's episode. If you've gained from what you've learned here today and would like to support my production of even more Torah content, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Link is in the description. Thank you to my listeners for listening and thank you to my patrons for supporting my efforts to make Torah ideas available and accessible to everyone.